knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. We've looked at five specific relationships that we have as Christians, and we've been given some great challenges as to how we should live in those different relationships. And this morning, we're going to look at the most general relationship that Paul shares, and that's the relationship that we have with our neighbors. And the Greek word that Paul uses here for neighbor means any person, irrespective of nation or religion, with whom we live or whom we meet. So our neighbor is not just someone who lives next door or in the same neighborhood as us. It's speaking of anyone that we have contact with, anyone that's in our life. And this is why our relationship with our neighbor is the most general relationship that Paul deals with, because all the other ones are very specific. You know, government was one, unbelievers was one, God obviously is one. We're going to look at a lot of different specific ones, but this one is dealing with every single person that we have a relationship with. And so in these verses we're going to be looking at uh, this morning, Paul's going to start by sharing with us God's command in our relationship with our neighbors, and then he's going to share with us uh, a really great reason why we should actually put this command into practice, and then he's going to follow that up with three practical ways that we can obey this command. Now, the command that Paul's going to give us in our relationship with our neighbors is really the most important command that we've seen and that we will see in this whole list of 10 different relationships that Paul is sharing with us. And so if we can actually understand and apply what Paul is commanding us with in our relationship to our neighbors, then everything else he's already commanded us with and everything that he's going to command in these other relationships will do. Uh, If we can just do this one, because this one is really the foundation for everything else. And so what we're going to look at this morning is so important for us, you know, to not only understand, because it's not new information, I'm sure, to most of you, but it's allowing this truth to actually become something that we live. And that's the real challenge, that it wouldn't just be something that we intellectually understand, but something that we actually apply to our lives. And so let me start this morning by reading the verses we're going to cover, and then we'll look at what challenges are there for us. Romans 13, starting in verse 8, says this, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. 
The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So Paul here starts in verse 8, giving us this command. In our relationship towards our neighbors, here's the command for you and I, that we owe no one anything except to love one another. Now, if you remember from last week, Paul you know, finished up that section there, in, uh, ending in verse 7, dealing with what we owe to the government. We owe, or what is due, our, our taxes, customs, fear, honor. You know, he, he was dealing with those realities. And now we come to this section where Paul says, you know what, now I want to share what you owe to your neighbor, what you owe to every other person who is on this earth with you. And he starts with first what we don't owe. And then he moves into what we do owe. And so the Greek word here translated owe means to be in debt or that which is due, which has not been paid. So Paul is saying, hey, first of all, this is what you don't owe. He says, owe no one anything. Now, some people have read this little portion of this verse and thought, okay, what Paul is saying here is that we should never be in debt to anyone. So we shouldn't take out a mortgage. We shouldn't finance a car. We shouldn't get a student loan. We shouldn't have a credit card because this is saying, oh, no one, anything. You should never be in debt. But that is not what this verse is saying, because that's not what this Greek word that's translated O means or is emphasizing. The emphasis of this Greek word is that we, um, of that which is due, which has not yet been paid. So what Paul is saying here is he's using this Greek word is that we should never be in a place where we're not paying back what we owe. If any of you have the NIV translation, it translates this word more clearly. It says, let no um, debt remain outstanding. That's the heart of this, that, you know, don't ever have a debt that you just say, well, I'm never going to pay that. I'm not going to pay that person back, even though I'm obligated to, even though, you know, I signed a contract to do it. And so it's never, it's saying, don't be in a place where you're not paying off that which you owe to someone else. So there's nothing wrong with going ahead and getting a mortgage on your house. There's nothing wrong with taking out a student loan. There's nothing wrong with financing a car, getting a credit card, borrowing money. That's not the issue. The issue is once you make that agreement to say, you know what, I'm going to pay you this amount of money every month to pay off my mortgage or whatever it is, then you need to be faithful to do that. You need to pay what you owe. The problem comes when we stop paying what we owe, when we don't give what we owe, then that's where we're doing what Paul says not to do. If you're not paying back the things that you owe people, then that is sinful. Psalm 37.21 says this, The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and give. And so the Bible has a lot to say about borrowing and things. There's nothing wrong with that. But the problem here that Paul is addressing is when we're not paying back what we borrow. 
Now, for many of those people, I'm sure all of us probably have borrowed or have a credit card or have some kind of, you know, debts in that regard. You know, usually the heart that we have is, I want to pay this off as quick as possible because I want to get rid of this payment. You know, if you finance a car, obviously if you have a house mortgage that takes a lot longer, student loan, whatever, you know, you don't want to have to continue to pay that for the rest of your life. And a lot of people's goal for retirement is to be debt free. You know, by the time I retire, I want to have my house paid off. I want to have my loans paid off, my credit cards paid off, my car paid off. I want to be in a place where I'm no longer in debt to anyone. And that's a very good practical place to be from a financial standpoint. But What Paul wants us to understand is there's one thing that you'll never be free from. There's one debt that you're never going to say, well, I don't know that anymore. You know, I finally paid that one off. And so I don't have to worry about doing that anymore. And that is the debt to love one another. And that's why Paul says, oh, no one anything except there's one exception. And that is to love one another. We should pay off all of our other debts. Anything that we owe to people, we're required to pay them back what we owe, except when it comes to love, you keep paying. That There's never an end to it. There's never, oh, well, I've paid that one off. I'm done with that. It's a continual payment. It's something that we continue to owe. We're never going to get to a place in our life where we say, well, you know what? I've loved that person enough. I don't owe them any more love. And sadly, sometimes you see that in relationships and marriages and, you know, friendships or whatever. It's just kind of like, well, I've given all the love that I have to and that I'm required to. And the reality is, no, (laughs) there's never an end to that. There's always more love that is required of us to pay out to others. So in every relationship we have, we owe those people love every day for the rest of our lives. Leon Morris said this, when we pay our taxes and be done, or we may pay our taxes and be done, we may give respect and honor where they are due and have no further obligation, but we can never say, I have done all the loving I need to do. Love then is a permanent obligation, a debt impossible to discharge. So each one of us are in this debt of love to others for the rest of our life. And you know what? That's the one debt that's okay to be in forever. You know, a lot of the debts that we have, sometimes we regret, you know, that purchase and, oh man, I wish I didn't buy that. It was so expensive and now I'm paying this off for how long? You know, there's certain debts that we regret. Love shouldn't be one of those. It's a good debt to be in and we are in it as believers for our whole life. Now, when you borrow money from someone, oftentimes when you see them, the first thing that comes to mind is, I owe them money. You know, and if you don't have any money, maybe you avoid them. But, you know, there's that kind of thought that comes, hey, you know, hey, I borrowed from them and I owe to them. But if you have that money, it's like, oh, great, I can finally pay them back. And, you know, in the same mindset, when we're looking at the world, the thing that should come to our mind is I owe them love and I should be paying that love to them. I should be demonstrating that to them in my words and my actions. D.L. Moody said this. A man may be a good doctor without loving his patients, a good lawyer without loving his clients, a good geologist without loving science, but he cannot be a good Christian without loving others. There's a lot of Christians who think, well, if I just know a lot of the Bible, that will make me a good Christian, or if I, you know, this or that. But the reality is, if we're not loving other people, 
since that's the foundation of really what Christianity is, loving God, loving others, you can't be a good Christian without that. And so God's command to us in our relationship with our neighbor is we owe everyone a debt of love and must pay it to them every day for the rest of our lives. Well, now that Paul has shared with us this important command as he's continued to do with these relationships, he now gives us a reason why. And this is important because, you know, with every command, we're always wanting, well, why should I do that? Why should I put this into practice? And I think what Paul shares with us here at the end of verse 8 is a wonderful reason for why you and I should obey this command and love our neighbor. Verse 8 says this, Owe no one anything except to love one another. Notice what he says next. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. What Paul says here is quite a powerful statement. That when we love other people, we have fulfilled the law. We fulfill the commands that God has given to us. Jesus says something very similar in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. Jesus says this, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. So when Jesus was asking, what's the greatest commandment? His response was, the greatest commandment is love God. Love Him with all your heart, love Him with all your mind, love Him with all your soul. And the second greatest commandment is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. But notice how Jesus ends His statement. He says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So what Jesus is saying is on these two commandments, love God with everything you have, love your neighbor as yourself, on those two hang the commandments of hang all the law and the prophets. So the, the reality of what Jesus is saying here is if you can love God and you can love others, then you will fulfill the commandments that God has given to us. And this is what Paul is saying when he tells us, he who loves another has fulfilled the law. You see, love for God and love for others is the key to doing God's commandments. The word that Paul uses here for love, the word that's used by Moses in the Old Testament, uh, the word that Jesus is using, well, ultimately the, the New Testament ones, are dealing with the Greek word agape, which basically is speaking of an unconditional love. And Paul describes that very well for us. So if we're thinking of, well, what does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? Well, 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8 says, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. When you and I are able to demonstrate this kind of love towards God, towards others, we will fulfill the commandments that God has given to us. Paul explains it like this in verses 9 and 10. For the commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So Paul's bringing back everything to love, and he brings us to the Ten Commandments, and he shares with us these important things. Now, the Ten Commandments are basically broken down into two categories. The first four commandments is all based on our relationship with God, the commandments that have to do with how we relate to God. And the next six commandments are broken down into our relationship with other people. And notice that as Paul is quoting these commandments, he's not quoting the relationship with God portion because that's not the focus of what he's sharing. He's talking about how we love our neighbor. And so he quotes the relationship with other portion and talks about the things that God tells us not to do. So you don't murder, you don't commit adultery, you don't covet, you don't lie. And then he goes on to say, if there's any other commandments, all of them are summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Every commandment that has to do with how we treat others is summed up in loving other people. Now, Jesus says all these things hang on two commandments, loving God and loving others. And Paul's just saying, I completely agree with that. I'm just focusing on the portion of loving others because that's what I'm sharing about here. In verse 10, he says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. What Paul is trying to communicate here is that If you love your neighbor, you're not going to harm them. You're going to actually fulfill what the law says, and here's why. If you love your neighbor with unconditional love that Paul is referring to, you wouldn't murder them. You wouldn't even threaten to murder them. You wouldn't even think about murdering them. So your love for them would cause you to fulfill the commandment, you shall not murder. If you love them, you're never going to do that. If you love your neighbor, and if you love your spouse, Guess what? You're not going to commit adultery against them. You're not even going to think about doing that. So if you love them, then that's going to cause you to obey the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from them. You're not going to lie about them. You're not going to covet them. Why? Because that love keeps you from doing those sinful things which are ultimately a lack of love towards those people. And the same is true in our relationship with God. If you truly love God, you're not going to worship other idols. You're not going to take the Lord's name in vain. You're not going to do those things that God says don't do in the relationship with me. Why? Because you love him. So your love for God and your love for others ultimately enables us to fulfill the commandments of God. You know, those sins that we often do that are the things we're told not to, of lying, murder, or anger in the heart, as Jesus talks about, coveting, stealing, adultery, lust. You know, all of those things are just self-based. They're selfish. They're all about me, which is the complete opposite of love, which is all about others, loving others. Not about me and what I can get, but but loving others and, and pouring into them. You know, there are a lot of people today who claim what we need more is self-love. And I think this is interesting because they try to use this passage where we're told, love your neighbor as yourself. And they say, see, we're commanded to love ourselves. And the world just says, you know, that's what we really need. There's people with this low self-esteem. There's people who have all this. And if we could just love ourselves more, it would remove all these problems that we have. But actually, one of our biggest problems is our love of ourselves. As we've seen through all these relationships, it's our love of ourselves that keeps us from loving God. It's our love of ourselves that keeps us from loving others. It's our love of ourselves that hinders this. 
Those who have those low self-esteems and those struggles, they don't need more love of themselves. What they need is to recognize how much God loves them. They need to know the value that they have because of the value that God places on them and what God has done to sacrifice himself for them. It's not more self-love. It's more of a recognition of God's love for them that will drastically change their perception of themselves and the value that they have and the worth that they have because of what God places on them. And sadly, even in the church, we're telling people, just love yourself more. No, that's not what we should do. The Bible doesn't say love ourselves more. It says love God more, love others more, love yourself less. And so when it says love others, love your neighbor as yourself, it's not telling us to love ourselves. It's just recognizing we already do. I mean, every single person loves themselves. They feed themselves. They clothe themselves. They look after themselves. They, they give in to the interest of themselves. They don't harm themselves. And we're called to love our neighbor in that way, to look after them just like you would look after yourself, to think of their needs like you always do of yours, to invest in their life like you would in your own. Leon Morris said this about loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's a certain thing that a person will love himself and is also certain that he will do so in spite of the fact that the self he loves has many faults. So Moses, Jesus, and Paul are saying, extend the same love to other faulty sinners that you extend to yourself as a faulty sinner. Love your neighbor as you do, in fact, love yourself. I love this quote because the reality is we love ourselves and we're screwed up. We love ourselves and we're full of problems. We love ourselves and we're sinful people. We love ourselves. We got lots of faults and problems and issues in our life. And yet we look at other people and say, I can't love you. Look at your issues. I can't love you. Look at your problems. I can't love you. And oftentimes we got more than they do. But we're surely willing to love ourselves, but we're not willing to love them. And the reality is, hey, let's love others with problems just like we love ourselves with problems as well. So Paul is bringing everything back to love. He's saying this is the key. This is the foundation. The whole law, all the commandments are summed up in two things, loving God and loving others. So the reason why we should obey this command to love our neighbor is because love fulfills the law and is the foundation to obeying God's commands. I mean, that should be a motivator for us. The reality is, you know, all of us as Christians should desire to fulfill the law. We should desire to do what God tells us to do. And God's making it real simple. We think, man, I can't remember all these commandments. There's so many of them. Hey, just love people. If you love them, you're going to do it. Oh, I don't know. How am I going to relate to you, God? Just love me. Love me, love others, and all the other things are just going to come together because if you can do that, you will start obeying what God's Word tells us to do. Love is the foundation to obeying God's commands. You know, when we fail in this, we get angry towards somebody. We often respond, you know what, I got an anger problem. You know, maybe it's my Irish heritage or whatever. We kind of throw excuses out and and we kind of just focus on the anger problem. But the real heart foundational issue is it's not so much an anger problem it's a love problem you got a problem loving people and that's why you're angry oh you know i got a problem with lying or i got a problem with whatever what you really have is a love problem if you love them then you wouldn't do that 
that's what you should really be focusing on, not so much of, you know, we don't have to address all these other issues. If we can address love, we can actually grow in that, then all these other things are going to start to be taken care of because that's really at the heart of it. I don't love you, and that's why I show you anger. I don't love you, and that's why I covet or I lust or whatever it may be. It ultimately comes back to a lack of love, and that's kind of the heart and the foundation of all these things. And if we can recognize that and focus on that, what a drastic change that would make in our life. This is why I said that what Paul shares here is the most important in all the relationships that he deals with. Because if we can do this, Everything that he said in our relationship to the government and our relationship to unbelievers, as we're going to see weak believers, and, and the list goes on and on. If we'll just love them, all the other stuff's going to come together. All the other commands that we've been given, hey, that's going to be easy if I'm loving people the way that God has called me to love people. And so I'm sure that, you know, man, I can't remember 10 different relationships and what I need to do. Well, then don't. Remember this one. Remember to love people, making it simple, making it easy. One thing that you really got to focus on and do, and you'll be able to do all these other things that we're being challenged to do. So Paul starts with this command. He moves to why we should do it. And now as he's done regularly, he's going to share with us some practical ways for how we can love our neighbor. Now, before we look at these three practical ways of how we can love our neighbor, I want to remind us of where our love comes from. You see, we pay the debt of love out of the surplus of God's inexhaustible love for us. We don't have to pay our debt of love towards others out of our limited love account. And for each one of us, we have a very limited love account. In our own flesh, in our own you know, ability and strength, we have very limited access to love. But what we need to do is tap into the inexhaustible account that God has. His love account will never be drained. It's something that we can always draw from. But if we're trying to just draw from our own limited accounts, we only have a little bit of love to offer. And we really don't have that unconditional love that God is calling us to draw from. You know, some of you have the blessing of having your parents pay maybe your phone bill or paying some other debt that you owe. And so even when you're broke, even when there's nothing in your bank account, that debt is still being paid because your parents aren't broke. And they have plenty of money in their bank account. And so, you know, oh, I'm broke. I can't pay my phone bill. Well, that's okay. I can draw from my parents' account and they'll pay it for me. And it's that wonderful reality of even though I got nothing in mine, there's another account that I can draw from. It's a privilege. It's a blessing to have that. And we have that with God. You can say, man, in my love account, I am empty right now, or I have just very little, and I don't know how I'm going to love people like God's told me to. Well, that's because you're looking to the wrong account. God's love account is full. And if I draw from that, I have plenty of love to give to all the people that God places in my life. It's that unlimited account that we have unlimited access to, to draw from and to do what God calls us to do. So recognize that the debt that we have is not something that we have to draw from our own resources, but yet draw from God's resources so that we can pay that debt of love to others. Well, let's see the practical ways that Paul gives us. And like with all these relationships, he's just given us a couple things. You know, we could spend, especially on love, you know, 
weeks upon weeks upon weeks dealing with ways in which we could demonstrate love to others. But he's just throwing out a few ideas to try to put into practice. Verses 11 through 14 says this. And do this, knowing the time, that now it's high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So notice here, Paul shares with us three very practical ways to love others, and he connects it with knowing the time in which we live. Paul says, do this, speaking of all these challenges to love, knowing the time. Now, the time that most of us need to practically know, the time that we're usually most focused on, is that time that we set our alarms for every single morning, the time that we have to get up, start our day, go to work, go to school, whatever we're going to do. You know, that's the time that we oftentimes are focused on. And Paul is sharing with us a picture, a picture of those who go to sleep, and now it's time for them to wake up. And now that they have woken up, it's time to get a shower and clean up. And once they get that shower and clean up, it's time to put some clothes on and dress up. He's bringing up these three realities of waking up and cleaning up and dressing up to help us see some very important spiritual truths of things that we need to have in our life. And so he's connecting these spiritual things, the ways in which we need to do so we can practically love with knowing the time that we live in. And so the first way we should love by knowing the time is in verse 11. Now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than we first believe. Paul wants us to know that in our Christian life, it's not time to spiritually sleep. It's time to be spiritually awake. All of us know what it's like to be physically asleep. I personally like to sleep. I enjoy sleep. But you know what? I'm pretty much useless while I'm sleeping. I'm not doing anything except lying there. I'm not aware of what's going on around me. I'm in a vulnerable place because someone could come and do whatever they want as I'm sound asleep there. And sadly, oftentimes as Christians, we are spiritually asleep. We aren't doing anything spiritually. We're not aware of what's going on around us spiritually. And because of that, we're very vulnerable to spiritual attack. Now, some people are capable of doing many things that make you think that they're awake when actually they're sound asleep. Some people can talk in their sleep and actually have full conversations while being sound asleep. And then in the morning, you talk to them and you say, do you remember what we talked about? And they're like, what are you talking about? I didn't talk about anything with you. I was sleeping. And, and they have this capacity to speak, but yet they're asleep. And you think, oh, you're awake. We're having this conversation. You realize, no, actually, you're not awake at all. And you're really not knowing what's going on. Some people can sleepwalk. And you see them walking around and you think, oh, well, you know, they're fully able, they're awake, they're, you know, coming to the kitchen and they're grabbing something to eat and they're sound asleep. And so they have these things that they're doing while they're sleeping that makes us think they're actually awake, but the reality is they're not. You know, in the same way, there are many Christians who you can look at and think, oh, they're spiritually awake, but the reality is, no, 
They're spiritually asleep. There's a lot of things that Christians can do spiritually asleep, spiritually unaware, spiritually tuned out. And a lot of them happen in church. Hey, we can be spiritually asleep and sing worship songs and just totally be tuned out and just, you know, oh, I know this song and just repeat it and not really mean it, not really focus on it. You, know, you can be spiritually asleep and listen to a sermon. You can be spiritually asleep and even talk about things of God and not really have any real awareness of what you're saying or what's going on. And so oftentimes people think, oh, they're awake. But the reality is, no, many Christians are spiritually asleep. And one of the things I want you to realize is that spiritual asleep state greatly hinders us from doing this command of loving others. If you're not awake spiritually, you're going to be greatly hindered from loving others. So Paul says it's high time to wake up. And then he tells us why we need to wake up. Notice what he says, because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. What Paul is saying here when he says our salvation is nearer when we first believe, well, whatever the date was, you can pick it the day you chose Christ. Every day after that, you're closer to meeting Jesus. Whether meeting him through death or whether meeting him because he returns for us. But each day that goes by, we are closer to that day. And so that's what Paul is revealing here is every day you're closer to the day that you stand before Jesus face to face. And because of that reality, wake up. Time's short. Each day that goes by, you're closer to eternity. And that should impact the way in which we live in the present. Paul says something similar to this in Ephesians 5, 14 through 16. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. It's a great reason to wake up. As we think about the time, as we think about the time that we are living in, Paul's saying, hey, the days are evil. And if you don't wake up spiritually, you're going to have really big problems because notice what he says right before the days are evil. Redeem the time. We should redeem the time that we have because of the evil days that we live in. But when we're spiritually asleep, we're not redeeming the time. We're wasting it. And sadly, too many of us can look back on our Christian life or maybe even presently in our Christian life and say, man, I am wasting time that I could be using for God's glory and just wasting it on things that don't really matter. Why? Because I'm spiritually asleep. I'm not really spiritually in tune with God. I'm not in tune with His will. I'm not spending time with Him. I'm just snoozing over here, doing my own thing. And because of it, I'm not redeeming the time the way that I should, and I need to realize, man, the days are evil, time is short, eternity is coming, and it's time to wake up and start living for Jesus. So the first way we should love by knowing the time is it's time to wake up spiritually because when we're spiritually asleep, it will hinder our love. God's spiritual alarm clock is sounding for us. And he's saying, wake up, church. Wake up and live for me. My return is soon. And we need to get about the business of living for Jesus. The second way we should love by knowing the times is in verse 12 through 13. 
The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. So physically, once you wake up and get yourself out of bed after you hit the snooze a few times, now it's time to clean up, get a shower, clean up yourself. And the same is true spiritually. Once we wake up spiritually, wake up to what's going on around us, wake up to the reality of we need to redeem the time because the days are evil. Now it's time to clean up spiritually. And Paul tells us there's two ways that we can clean up spiritually. The first way is by casting off the worst of darkness, like revelry, drunkenness, lewdness, lust, strife, and envy. We need to cast all those off. Why? Because they are the opposite of loving people. They're the opposite of doing those things. And so they are unloving, not loving. These are also the things that make us spiritually dirty And we need to get rid of them if we want to be spiritually clean. You know, when I was young, one night I wet my bed. And so in the morning I'm covered in pee. And my mom puts me in the bathtub to to get me clean. And as I'm there in the soapy water to clean myself, the water's really warm, which made me want to pee again. And so I peed in the water. And so, you know, the thing that got me dirty, that my mom placed me in the tub to clean me from, I didn't get rid of it. I just did it again, and it just got me dirty again. And the reason I bring that up is because so often we want to be clean spiritually. And we're doing things that make us dirty, and then, oh, I want to get clean, but it's impossible to be clean if we continue to do those things that make us dirty. And so we have this kind of conundrum that we face, and so we need to do here what Paul is saying. We've got to cast off these things. These are the things that are making us dirty. And so if we want to be clean, we have to address these things. We've got to deal with them, to ignore them, and to say, well, it's okay, I'll just keep doing it. Well, then you're not going to be spiritually clean. And the way that you and I become spiritually clean is first we repent of those things to turn away from them and then to confess. Confess to the Lord. And He's the one who cleans us up. 1 John 1.9 tells us, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hey, so the first way to get clean, come to Jesus, repent, pray, confess, He'll clean you, but then we need to take a step to say, you know what, I'm going to truly repent and turn away from this stuff, cast this off. I don't want to continue in this because I know it's just going to dirty me up again. But the second way that Paul tells us to get clean is not just what we get rid of in our life, but also what we do now in our life. And he tells us to walk properly as in the day and put on the armor of light. So once you are spiritually cleansed by Jesus, you need to walk in the things that will keep you clean. Get rid of the things that are making you dirty. Walk in the things that will keep you clean. And notice the terms darkness and light, night and day that Paul uses. He's continuing this analogy with someone who was sleeping, and now it's time to get up. And now it's time to clean up. You know, Because at nighttime, well, that's the time that you sleep, but it's also the time that most people, when it's dark, do the most sinful behavior. 
When it's light out, when it's daytime, you know, a lot of people, even people who are criminals, you know, they wait to the nights. And so even in the daytime, you know, they're, they're acting properly. But at nighttime is the time when most of the sinful things take place. And so Paul's saying, hey, it's day. <laughs> it's time to get up. And it's time to walk in the light. It's time to walk in things that are of God. Paul gives a similar challenge of walking in light versus darkness in Ephesians 5, 8 through 14. He says, for you once, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Now, we could spend the whole rest of our time in these verses, and I just wanted to throw that out there to emphasize two things that are in there. And the first, that Paul speaks of the fruit of the Spirit being what enables us to walk in the light And notice one of the most important fruits of the Spirit, the very first one that's mentioned, is love. It's a a byproduct of the power of the Spirit within us. And the second thing I want to draw your attention to is we're told that Christ will give you light. You know, as we seek to be spiritually cleansed, to stop walking in the unloving works of darkness and start walking in the loving ways of light, we need to remember we do not do that on our own. It is something that Jesus enables us to do through the power of his spirit. And if you try on your own, you will fail. So the second way we should love by knowing the time is it's time to clean up spiritually and get rid of unloving behavior and walk in love. One of the best things that you and I can do to love others better is to be spiritually cleansed. The third way we should love by knowing the time is in verse 14. It says this, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. So once we wake up, we get out of bed, we clean up, we take our shower, and we get out of the shower, we don't just go about the day like that, naked. We we clothe ourselves, we dress up, we put something on, proper for the day. So if you're going to work, you don't wear your pajamas, you wear what you're supposed to wear for work. You know, we get properly dressed to leave and go out to do what we need to do. And in the same way, spiritually, after we've woken up and we've cleaned up, well, well now we need to dress up. And Paul tells us, hey, the, the way that we do that spiritually is there's something we put on. Just like we put on clothes, physically, we need to put on Jesus Christ. And I want you to realize before you leave the house every single day, you put on clothes. Before you leave the house every day from a spiritual standpoint, you should put on Jesus. And sadly, it's like, I'll put on clothes and walk out and do whatever, but I'm not spiritually clothed. I'm not spiritually ready for the day. Why? Because I have not put on Jesus. Ray Stedman gives a helpful illustration of putting on Jesus. He says this, When I get up in the morning, I put on my clothes, intending them to be a part of me all day, to go where I go and do what I do. They cover me and make me presentable to others. That is the purpose of clothes. In the same way, 
the apostle is saying to us, put on Jesus Christ when you get up in the morning. Make him a part of your life in that day. Intend that he go with you everywhere you go and that he act through you in everything you do. Call upon his resources. Live your life in Christ. You know, the most practical way to put on Jesus is to spend time with him. Spend time in prayer. Spend time studying about God and what he has for us in his word. Spend time in worship. And do it every day. We need to be physically clothed every day. We need to be spiritually clothed every day. And just like you put on your shirt and you take the time to put on your pants and to put on your clothes, take time to spend with Jesus to spiritually prepare you for the day. And this is one of the most practical steps in order to love others. When you spend time with the God of love, it prepares you to love others. When you spend time with the God of love, you start to grab from his account and fill your life with the love that you need. When you neglect that, you're kind of walking through life with your own limited account of love. And that's why we're very unloving when we neglect spending time with the God of love and the resources of love that are available to us as we dig into the Word, as we spend time in prayer, as we worship the Lord. Those are all things that are great preparations to help us love other people. Paul also tells us not only do we put on Christ, but there's something we shouldn't put on, something we should avoid, and that is fulfilling the lust of the flesh. And that's our struggle. You know, we go out and, and we have these lusts and we give into these lusts and it's these lusts that keep us from loving people. And so, hey, hey, put on Jesus who will help you love and stop feeding your flesh, which ultimately is just about you and selfishness and, and unwillingness to love others. So the third way we should love by knowing the time is it's time to dress up spiritually and put on Jesus every day to enable us to love. And I really want to emphasize the every day, you know, because that's the thing that you know we so often just neglect. And some you know, some say, well, I don't have the hour or two hours, whatever. You know what? Just start with something realistic that you can do. If you can realistically only spend five minutes a day with Jesus, better that than nothing. Put it into your schedule, allot it. You know what? I'm going to give Jesus five or 10 or 15 and, and you'll see it start to grow, but make sure it's a daily thing that you do and invest and make time for and watch the change that happens in you. Watch how you start to become more like Jesus, the one who is the God who shows so much love to us. I want to close by reading one of my favorite passages on love. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7-11 through 11 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifest toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The love that God is asking us to demonstrate to others is something that He has first demonstrated to us. We love God, why? Because He first loved us. And He's saying, I have loved you. 
in this wonderful way. As Jesus tells his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, he doesn't stop there, as I have loved you. That's what I want. I want you to look at my example of love, and now I want you to do it and demonstrate it to other people. So if you want to do all that God commands and the different relationships that we're looking at here in in Romans, we'll make it real simple. Love. Love God. Love others. You love others like Jesus loved you, then you're going to fulfill the law of God towards your neighbor. But just because it might be simple in the sense it's only one thing, it doesn't make it easy. All of us who have attempted to love others, we realize it's hard. It's difficult. And one of the main reasons it's difficult is because we forget what I shared earlier, that we pay our debt of love out of the surplus of God's inexhaustible love for us, not out of our own love account. If you want to be effective in loving others, remember, the resources are available. God has them for you. My account is full and you have access. I put your name there. You can come in and withdraw whenever you want. Quit trying to withdraw from your meager love account and come withdraw from the account that I have opened for you that is full of everything you need. And so if we'll depend upon and rely upon what God offers, we can do what he commands us to do. Let's pray.